Digital media, iTunes podcast, smartphone apps, and from the online website. This is Outlook, the talking newspaper for Coventry. Hello, and uh, welcome from me, Nigel Hewin. Uh, this edition is being recorded on Wednesday, the 18th of January. And coming up in this edition, Margaret will be visiting Swan Street in her tour around the 50 buildings of Coventry. Uh, James Herriot, which I'm sure you all know about, uh, was uh, an author of many books and also a superstar because of the great uh, creatures great and small on television. But his children have been uh, talking about him and how he moved from being a vet to a superstar writer and, and literary man. Susie Dent, she of uh, uh, the fame from Countdown, looks at the big freeze. Uh, of course, recently you uh, may not have known, but many of you will, there was a volunteers party here at the centre and Dave went down to record uh, uh, the action there for us on this programme. And finally, to end the programme, we will have Ali another of her short stories. But before that, of course, we've got uh, the uh, report from the centre here, sport uh, uh, and the post, your post bag. But first, as always, mm-hmm. we're going to start with news with Elaine and myself. Outlook News. Bold plans to plant 360,000 trees in Coventry by 2031 have taken a major step forward. The eye-catching policy to plant a tree for every citizen is a key part of the city's new tree strategy, formally adopted by the council at a cabinet meeting last week. Trees will be appearing all across the city with particular concentrations in the areas where need is highest, a council officer said, which are predominantly the northeast of the city and Foles Hill. A spokesman said the cost of the scheme would be nominal at a local level, as the council can access government funding and money from corporate partners. The tree strategy has been a need for a long time, he said. In the past few years, we've put some focus into it. Andrew Walster, a director at the council, said there was a sea change in the public's relationship to trees over the pandemic. There was a huge increase in new volunteers planting trees, he said. To achieve the 360,000 figure, Coventry Council aims to be planting 75,000 trees per year by the end of the decade, according to the strategy. This is five times the 15,000 it intends to plant this year. The Council also plans to increase annual funding and private income related to the strategy by four times, from 5,000 in 2024 to 20,000 in 2031. It hopes to raise volunteer hours to 500 and put on 15 community planting days per year by the end of the decade. Councillors Pat Heatherton and Abdul Khan jointly commented, Our urban forest covers streets and parks, schools, cemeteries, housing estates, private gardens and more. Sometimes it is easy to walk past trees that have been there for years and not even notice them, but we would miss them so much if they were gone. 
Coventry is set to have 148 affordable new homes and community investment with planning approved for development on Elmfields Farm and work expected to start on the site next month. The development will include 54 homes for affordable rent and 27 for social rent as well as 50 available for shared ownership and 17 available through rent to buy. All the homes will have air source heat pumps installed to reduce energy bills and 50% of the properties will also have solar panels added. There will also be electric vehicle charging points to reduce emissions. Closed timber panels will be transported onto the site where they are assembled to form the walls, reducing the amount of carbon produced by building materials by 25%. Wildflower meadows and ponds will be added to the development as well as green public open spaces and play equipment. Public art will be installed to promote Coventry's rich history and an apple orchard will be planted. The Nat West branch in Walsgrave Road is due to close its doors this week on Thursday, January the 19th. However, post offices nearby will be offering banking services as a face-to-face backup. Walsgrave Road Post Office, Upper Stoke Post Office on Coventry Street and Humber Road Post Office will all provide banking services following the branch's closure. A spokesman for the National Federation of Sub-Postmasters said each of these branches offers banking services, including deposits, free cash withdrawals and balance checks, as well as offering face-to-face access to government services, bill payment, foreign currency, travel insurance and, of course, postal services. There are many free-to-use ATMs installed across the UK post office network also. Last October, NatWest announced plans to close 43 of its branches across the UK, as the bank continues to place greater emphasis on its banking services online. A NatWest spokesman said, As with many industries, most of our customers are shifting to mobile and online banking, because it is faster and easier for people to manage their financial lives. We understand and recognise that digital solutions aren't right for everyone or every situation and that when we close branches, we have to make sure that no one is left behind. Coventry has been dealt a further major blow after a huge retailer announced the closure of another of its pharmacy branches in the city. Boots has long been a staple across the city, offering a wide range of beauty, health and pharmaceutical products. Their presence will be reduced as another one of their pharmacy branches will be shutting down. The pharmacy at Cornway in Binley is set to close next month, February. Signs posted on the shop window have announced this closure on February the 10th. Customers have been directed to the chain's nearest pharmacy in Warwickshire Shopping Park. This month, Boots has confirmed plans to close 200 pharmacies due to difficult market conditions in the UK, describing the pharmacies as loss-making. The spate of closure comes after a dramatic fall in its profits in 2020. A court order has been granted against a Coventry dad who owes nearly £41,000 in unpaid child maintenance 
Adedeo Awei was among dozens of parents hit with liability orders earlier this month. Awei, 56, whose title was stated as doctor, was alleged to owe £40,990, which had been racked up over a five-year period. It was the largest amount among the Child Maintenance Service's bulk application for liability orders against more than 60 parents made on Friday, January the 6th. A number of parents in the region were hit with orders, including those from Warwickshire, Birmingham and the Black Country. District Judge Hogarth granted them after hearing that each defendant had failed to make one or more payments and had been notified of the application by court summons at least seven days prior. Neither Awei of Coombe Park Road Coventry nor any of the other named parents attended to contest the application. Liability orders allow the CMS to take a range of legal actions to collect unpaid maintenance, including instructing bailiffs to seize and sell belongings, sending the paying parent to prison, or stopping their driving licence. A Coventry drug dealer has been jailed after he was found with 148 wraps of crack cocaine and heroin in his underwear. Kasham Ahmed, 25, was stopped by officers who were investigating a robbery in Lockside Place in Fosal. When they searched Ahmed, they found a large knife tucked into his trousers. After hauling him to Coventry Police Station, officers found 148 wraps of the drugs hidden in his underwear. While being arrested, Ahmed said the large knife belonged to his friend and he had simply picked it up from his kitchen. He told officers that he had intended to destroy the knife and drugs and had put them in his underwear as he did not want to carry them in his hands. In his police interview, Ahmed then claimed he had been out for a walk and was on his way to buy some trainers, claiming he happened to find the drugs and knife while out. He was asked why he did not call the police if he had found the items, to which he responded that he didn't know Officers later searched his home where a small amount of cannabis, a grinder and some small dealer bags were recovered. Ahmed was found guilty of possession with intent to supply crack cocaine, (coughs) possession with intent to supply heroin and possession of a bladed or pointed article. He was jailed for 18 months. A youth club set up by a former Coventry criminal wants to steer young people in the right direction to ensure they fulfil their potential. Tyler Campbell lost a friend to violence connected to crime and nearly served prison time himself. He admits he used to steal cars and it was those thefts that saw him on the brink of serving time behind bars. It was that near miss that led to the now 22-year-old turning his life around and setting up Fridays in Coventry in 2019. Since then the club has grown to now having 70 volunteers a new chief operating officer, and plans to branch out to other cities in the Midlands. Tyler originally gained help from the Prince's Trust to set up Fridays, and he is now an ambassador for the Trust, and last year had the honour of meeting the then Prince Charles at the Commonwealth Games. Fridays gives young people aged 10 to 17 a safe and secure environment to enjoy activities such as music, mentoring, job matching, 
socialising and gaining life skills to build futures away from negative influences. Life of an entrepreneur for both Tyler and Chief Operating Officer Jacob hasn't been easy, but they see themselves as role models for others wanting to get into the business and grabbing opportunities. Jacob said, You don't get much sleep and you work a lot, but it's so rewarding to experience your own success. Tales were wagging as three caring police officers handed over thousands of pounds for a charity that's close to their hearts. PC Paul Hopley, PC Liza Phillips and PC Gaz Phillips have raised money for the retired West Midlands Police Dog Benevolent Fund that helps look after retired and injured police dogs. PC Hopley was inspired by the support by the support the charity offered to his dog, police dog Stark, who was stabbed multiple times with a machete after attending to reports of a burglary in 2020. The five-year-old German Shepherd was seriously hurt and almost lost his eye, but with the help of charities including the WMP Dog Benevolent Fund, Stark was soon back on his feet and back to the job he loves to do. PC Liza Phillips' husband, PC Gaz Phillips, was seriously injured after he was run over and almost killed by a car thief in 2019. The officers presented the cheque to Benevolent Fund Treasurer Terry Grove at uh, uh, the Police Dog Training Centre in Borsal Common. Terry said, The bond between us and our police dogs is a hard one to break. When a police dog is ready to retire, handlers will often keep them with their families where they can enjoy their retirement most. The fund will help ensure treatment like operations, blood tests, medication, x-rays and hydrotherapy, something many retired dogs have previously benefited from. Coventry City Council has backtracked over changes to the Warwick Road bus gate. The busy bus lane was suspended over the Christmas period and open to other motorists to ease traffic. Last week, the council said the bus gate was back in operation. However... It has just announced that the temporary suspension will now continue until roadworks in the area are finished. The temporary suspension originally ended on Monday, January 9th, with immediate effect. But at 1pm last Friday, the 13th, it was back. The council said, good news, we're continuing the temporary suspension of the Warwick Road bus gate while we have the ongoing roadworks at Junction 7. This measure will remain in place until the work at Junction 7 is complete. We hope this makes your journeys a bit quicker and safer. Warwick Road bus lane was introduced in 2015 as part of a one-way system by the city's station. Since it was built, it has been the top issuer of fines in five of the last seven years. On its website, the council writes... We operate a bus lane enforcement scheme to improve public transport reliability, journey times and to encourage sustainable travel. Bus lane signs and markings clearly indicate both the start and end of bus lanes and highlight the hours of operation. Graham Mills, 41, a branch manager at the Heart of England Beekeeping in Coventry, has been passionate about bees for 22 years. When he started out chicken farming in Wales in 1998, he went to collect some chickens and asked the seller, who was also a beekeeper, if he could help, and from that day on he was addicted. 
Graham now runs the Heart of England Beekeeping, where they rescue bumblebees from gardens and lofts and rehome them locally. He now wants to educate people on how to care for bees properly and says that so many pesticides are killing not only bees but insects and flies. He said, bees have a special place in my heart. They all play such a vital part in pollinating our food and people who just don't understand how close the balance is for them. Honeybees and bumblebees are in decline and if we do a little bit we can make a huge difference. Wildflowers are easy to scatter and make fantastic area, areas for all insects. A spokesman from Coventry Beekeepers Association said, There has been a gap where adults have been brought up in a spray it and kill it situation. We need to educate people that there is more to it than this. Councillor Marcus Lapser from Westwood Ward in Coventry has been working behind the scenes to organise groups to clear areas ready for the bees. He said, Graham and I are in the planning stage to run some community events to promote the importance of bees. I have always been keen on environmental issues and have organised mass tree planting as well as planting of wildflower meadows. I have contacted rangers at the council to get more sites available for planting nectar-bearing plants. Bee season starts in April, so we will be up and running and educating people on its importance. Last year saw some great gigs in Coventry. Fans were thrilled to see hometown heroes The Enemy making their triumphant return to the city. But some of the biggest names in the world were also seen taking to the stage at Radio 1's Big Weekend. And live music is back post-pandemic, meaning gigs are the perfect way to be entertained. So who is there to look forward to this year? Gwen Stefani will be making her UK return next summer with a series of headline shows, the very first of which will be at Warwick Castle on June the 23rd. Next month, Ocean Colour Scenes' Simon and Oscar will perform their big hits and anthems, including the Riverboat Song, The Circle, Traveller's Tune, Hundred Mile High City and The Day We Caught the Train, at the HMV Empire on February the 17th. In June, Coventry's own The Selector will be performing a special homecoming gig at the Empire. Fresh out of the studio after recording their 12th studio album, the Proclaimers are hitting the road in 2023 and will be stopping off in Warwick on May the 19th. One for All Scarhead's legendary band Bad Manners will be playing in Leamington Spa in just a few weeks' time. Formed in 1976 in London, the band was at its most popular during the 1980s with the rise of Two-Tone. And the two biggest gigs of the summer coming to the Coventry Building Society Arena will be Harry Styles playing on May the 22nd and 23rd and the following week, Sheffield Indie Rockers' Arctic Monkeys will also be playing at the arena. But both of these gigs have sold out already very quickly. Outlook News. Thank you. 
So uh, that's uh, your local news for this week from uh, Elaine and myself. Uh, the only announcement is the usual one, of course, of sunrise and sunset. The days are getting longer at last. Hey. Sunrise at eight, uh, seven minutes past eight, and it doesn't go away until 28 minutes past four in the afternoon. And now it's my pleasure to welcome not Hugh, but Joe, to tell you what's happening here at the centre. Yes, hello. Thank you very much indeed. And it is really good news that it's getting lighter in the evenings, isn't it? Isn't it? Yes. And for everybody. The sun shines up that today. Yes, yes, I've noticed because I leave work at about 4.30 and it's now slightly light. Yes. So yes, that's really is. lovely. Yeah. Well, hello everybody. Uh, Hugh sends his apologies. He has gone north for the day, <laughs> trying to sort out some work that we need sorting. Um, so I have a few items of news for you. A quick reminder, I know that uh, Hugh mentioned the next theatre trip, which is on Wednesday the 8th of February, and I know that he described the play in some detail last week, so it's called Afterlife by a man called Jack Thorne. Apparently it's a very good play about an interesting subject, about being caught between life and death, or the afterlife. <laughs> Uh, and I don't know much more than that, but I, Hugh, t- Hugh told me it's cheerier than it sounds. Sounds so. <laughs> more than it is. It's not a laugh a minute, maybe, no, but a little quite. bit more depth, <laughs> a little bit more in-depth. So yeah. um, if you'd like to come along to that, please ring us as soon as you can and let us know, and we'll reserve a place for you. Um, and the usual ticket price of £12.50, plus cost of transport and fish and chips. Um the other thing I've just had some news in about this today, um, which may be of interest possibly to somebody out there. If anyone has played golf before and given it up or would like to have a go at playing golf, visual impairment, you know, irrespective of, um, I've been contacted by somebody called Steve Cunningham, who is a blind golfer and they are... Um, backed by the RNIB and various other parties, they are organising at the Warwickshire Golf Club uh, a sort of taster day for anyone who might be visually impaired or blind and might be interested in having a go. Um, So we probably won't be organising a trip because actually it's on a Tuesday, 31st of January, uh, between 10 o'clock and 2pm. And you need to be able to take somebody with you who's sighted, um, obviously to get there for the first thing. And <laughs> secondly, they have a, the way they play apparently is that you, you have somebody with you who acts as a ball spotter and a guide. And obviously will give you verbal instructions as to where you're aiming for. Um, so it requires probably that you go along with a friend or a loved one or a family member or whoever uh, or, or a colleague who plays golf and um, drives <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, uh, but they are laying it on for free uh, on 31st of January and um, they'll teach people a bit about how they do it um, Steve is blind himself and has been playing golf for many years by the sound of it and they're laying on a free lunch too That's so cool. if you're interested ask one of us here at the office or ring in and we've got the number for Steve he can be contacted about that um I'd like to make a special, uh, I don't know if it's an announcement exactly, but I'd like to just give a special heads up to Chris and Claire in their fantastic mm. efforts for us yeah. for the Take On 250 campaign. Yes. You're all aware that they're doing this, but um, just as an update, uh, 
Chris has actually managed to run walk his whole 250 kilometres already, having good started. Uh, very good going. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he's now decided he's going to do 250 miles, um, which is amazing. <laughs> um, Claire is not far behind him, but is still working towards her 250k. Um, and they're doing amazingly well. And it's generating fantastic interest. Mm. So we've had local running clubs get involved. They've sent people to get trained in how to run and guide. Um, and we have um, raised over £1,100 so far. Ooh, goes up Halfway the through the month. Fantastic, isn't yeah. it? There's a just giving page for that, isn't there? I beg your pardon? A just giving page, isn't there? There's a just giving page, um, which uh, I can't remember how you get on. But if you look at the just giving website yep. and you search for Coventry Resource Centre for the Blind or Chris and Claire 250km, you should find it that way. Good. If you get stuck, we can help you with that. Um, or you can donate at the centre. Yeah. Um, so we've had people walking in off the street to make cash donations because they've seen them running yeah, and they've, ca- the they've caught on what's going on. Yeah. We've had an article in the Coventry Observer. Uh-huh. Uh, and yes. last night, yes. Tuesday the 17th, would that be? Yeah. Uh, they were on Coventry and Warwickshire Radio. Mm. So with you, uh, if you want to listen in, last night's programme with Lorna Bailey, and they were on at 8.20pm. I have put the link to that on the Facebook page, so if anyone does use Facebook, you can find it there. But if you just go on Coventry and Warwickshire, uh, BBC Sounds, go on their website, you can find it that way. Or get one of us to let you listen to it here it was really good fun little uh, segment actually so they uh, Lorna clearly enjoyed having them in the studio um no reason not to yeah <laughs> well it was just it was just very interesting they had a good you know they were just describing the running but also mm. how you guide somebody and Hugh mm. was talking about what it's like to guide somebody mm. and the the, the, uh, the hazards along the way um mm. so they all had a bit of a, a chuckle about that and um they are going to be on the radio again on Thursday morning this week, the breakfast show. Phil might not get that. Might be after they receive this. This other than those who are listening avidly first thing tomorrow morning, because we tape doesn't go out till tomorrow. Does it? Ah, okay. Well, they will have, have been on the radio be, yes, Thursday quite, morning yes. then. So, yes. <laughs> um, yeah, and I think they'll be going back on to Lorna Bailey's show later in the month because she wants to hear how they've got on. Yeah. Cool. So yeah. How uh, far they've actually done. At how the end far of the they've month. done and what they've raised. Yeah. Yeah. So yes. we're getting the Perfect. message out. And obviously it's about fundraising, but it's also about awareness raising. Yes. And mm. more opportunities mm. we have to talk to people in Coventry mm-hmm. about what losing your sight can be like and what mm. the challenges are. And what are. you can do. And what you can do mm. and what the charity does to support mm. people to live fully. Um, you know, the more good news that is really, isn't it? Yes. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, I think the only last thing for me to let you know about... Oh, there's two things, actually. I know that the um, Thomas Pocklington Trust have been running in quite a big campaign on pavement parking. Um, it's It's been done, that... The uh, research and they've put a report together for the government and they are now pushing the government to actually do something in response. It's a major problem for years, hasn't it? Yeah, mm-hmm. and getting worse, I think. Yes. Uh, I mean, I'm not visually impaired, but I have enough problems mm-hmm. getting around park cars. <laughs> yes. Uh, it's, it's a tricky one, isn't it? But um, they are now pushing, the Thomas Pocklington Trust are now pushing the government to actually respond to the public consultation. Mm-hmm. So when we hear any more on that, we'll let you know. Um, we're hoping the government will do something uh, to improve conditions for people. And then lastly, quite important item actually, um, 
I think it's a very important thing to use your vote. That's just my view. But um, anyone who wants to vote, um, we are aware that recently the law has changed and the government are going to require all voters to be able to show some form of photo ID when you go to the polling station. So if you are one of those people that goes to vote at the polling station, um, I don't know what's happening with postal votes. I imagine that's different. But you will need to bring with you some sort of form of photographic ID. There are some specifics, they say, I believe, aren't there, which which are acceptable and some which aren't. Well, Do you know which they are? Because I don't yet. You mean in terms of the ID? Yes. Yeah. Which, well, which the li- photographs what are I have acceptable? here tells us that the, ah, the accepted forms of ID will be a UK or European Union or Commonwealth passport or driver's license because they all are photo ID aren't they and they will accept some concessionary travel passes and that would include things like an an older person's bus pass yes Uh, yeah (laughs) yeah. I I don't know whether they would accept um, you know any other kinds of ID that that sounds like has to be something pretty official that covers most things that people like to have yeah yes but if you can't provide a photo ID, then there is a way of registering before you vote. Uh, so if you don't have the accepted forms of ID, you can give them a ring, uh, the electoral services team, and they will be able to help you apply for what they call a voter authority certificate. Um, so you can get help to do that by calling them on, I've got the number here, 024 3034 or emailing them at uh, electoral.services at coventry.gov.uk and they will help you out. So I suggest people do that quite early. I think the next election is May. It's May. in May, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Early so May, I think. Fourth, so first right, first yes, fourth. early May, so yes. to make sure you don't miss out. Yes, because these rules don't apply as of that day, don't they? Yeah, they, they would do. I can't see that. It's a lot of electoral yeah. fraud, too. Well, I think yeah. that's obviously yeah. behind it, isn't it? So, yes. But you need yeah. to get a bit organised mm. and Absolutely. make sure you get yep. these paperwork mm. sorted out. So I think that's all from me. Thank you very much for having me. Thank and you. And uh, my best to everybody and um, look forward to seeing you all soon. Good. Thank you. It's always a pleasure to have you here. Well, Hugh, I guess, will be back with us next week. He shall be back here next week, yes. In the meantime, we will carry on. Thank you very much. Thank you. And now here's Sarah with your sports report for this week. Outlook Sport. Well, hello there, listeners. Tis indeed Sarah, and welcome to sport. Now, I am recording from home, and if you can hear the noise of a somnolent cat basically snoring, yes, it's Emily again. She's not purring this time. She is fast asleep. Now, I'm going to start sport with some sad news. I'm sure you've all heard of the death of local sportsman David Duckham. Well, both David and I were old Coventrians. That is, we were former pupils of King Henry VIII's school. And I thought I would start off by reading out this obituary that appeared on our Facebook group. Because it's rather nice and it brings a bit of a a personal inside. David Duckham, 
1947 to 2023. We are desperately saddened to inform the old Coventrian community of the passing last night of David Duckham. An unarguably the greatest rugby player the school has produced, a world-famous sportsman for Coventry, Warwickshire, England, the British and Irish Lions and the Barbars. His ability to thrill crowds with his open running and his magnificent sidestepping made him an admired, respected and beloved figure the world over. R.I.P. David. R.I.P. indeed. I also remember him as Mr. Duckham because he used to come to the schools on occasions to coach the Rugby 15. I should say at this point, actually, that David and I were two decades apart, in case you're trying to work out how old I am. Anyway, enough of that. At the weekend, Coventry Rugby Club took on Jersey Reds in a match they dedicated to the memory of David. After all, you could he really only ever played for Coventry and there aren't many, certainly stars of the game, who only play for one club. Now, regular listeners will know that I have told you so many times before how Jersey are one of our bogey teams and we always lose against them. And going into this match, they were second in the division and we were third. They were a good way behind. So it was going to be a big match and it was in front of a record crowd of over three and a half thousand. And I don't suppose many had come from Jersey. Anyway, at half-time, it was nil-nil. Quite rare, really, for a rugby match. But then it soon became 0-5 to them. But then 5-5. Then 12-5 to us. Then 19-5. However, in injury time, they clawed it all back with a final score of 19-19. But a very credible match, a great score and a good draw. Now on Saturday, also, Coventry City travelled north to Burnley in Lancashire. Now it was quite a cold, windy day. Burnley's ground, Turf Moor, is one of the highest in the football division. And it's a traditional open stadium, not one of the bowl-likes with no sides, but with open corners. And the commentators were saying, well, quite bluntly, the ball could go anywhere when it's in the air. Anyway, like the rugby, that too was nil-nil at half-time. But then in the 83rd minute, there was a bit of a, shall we say, coming together between Ben Wilson and one of their strikers who 
who Wilson had just deflected a goal from. One Another of our players knocked their striker onto Ben Wilson. Got it? And both the striker and Wilson ended up wrestling, apparently, in the goal mouth, sort of all caught up in the netting, etc., but avoiding throwing a punch, which would have meant an automatic red card. Anyway, the ref intervened. Both players got yellow cards and Burnley went, took the corner and you guessed it, they scored. And that's how it finished, 1-0 to Burnley. What I didn't say though before I started this report was going into that match, Burnley were 21 points ahead of City and are running away with the title and certain, pretty certain, as certain as you can get to get promotion or should I say re-promotion to the Premier because they were only relegated this year. Anyway, Coventry now lie 15th, but it is a very tight division and I believe only four points lie between where Coventry are in 15th and the next team in the promotion playoffs in presumably 6th. So who knows, we just need Coventry to really get back to the winning ways they had before the World Cup. However, the bigger picture, we now have a new owner. We are no longer puppets of Saisu. Doug King owns 85% of us, having had agreement from the English Football League, the EFL though many think that it's probably just a precursor to a bigger takeover at some stage by Mike Ashley, who used to own Newcastle, has re- is relocating his sports direct HQ to just outside Coventry and owns the Coventry Building Society Stadium. Confused? Yes, well, so am I. But just watch this space. Now, I know that not a lot of the so-called non-league matches were postponed due to the weather and I couldn't find anything for Stratford, Leamington or Nuneaton. That's not to say that you weren't playing, it's just you weren't covered on CWR and your Facebook page is not up to date yet. However, going right down to the small clubs in their very little non-leagues, we had... Wins away for Racing Club Warwick against Amersham and Rugby Town built Milton, beat Milton Keynes Irish and also, drumroll, Comtry United were back on their winning ways beating Lutterworth Town 3-1 away. However, unfortunately, Coventry United women also away on Sunday, were beaten by Bristol, losing three goals to two. Next Sunday is their first home match of 2023 against, I believe, Crystal Palace, kick-off 2pm. So if you fancy a good afternoon out, 
go to the Butts Park Arena. And now we move to hotter climbs, Australia, where it's currently apparently on tennis courts about 37 degrees. It was commiserations firstly to Cameron Norrie, who was the beaten finalist, so celebrations in many ways, at the Auckland Open. He was beaten there by Richard Gasquet of France. But, you know, you're on the right track, Cameron. Meanwhile, Emma Raducanu says she is in a really good place following her withdrawal in Melbourne. You see, all of these players are getting used to the climate and the courts, etc., by playing the smaller competitions in Australia before the big open. However, the Open began on Monday and both Cameron and Emma are now through to the second round. Though Emma faces Coco Goff, probably the leading American female player. I don't think you'll be in such a really good place after that match, Emma. But here's hoping... Miracles do happen, as happened in the States when you won the Open. However, drumroll, this morning I checked the website to see two further Brits had qualified. Dan Evans, seeded 25th, and amazingly, Andy Murray, who beat Matteo Berrettini, yes, the Wimbledon finalist in 2021, in five sets, winning the last set on a championship tie-break at 10-6, having been 6-1 down. Don't underestimate Berrettini. He was expected to do even better at Wimbledon 2022 but he got the diagnosis of COVID, so had to withdraw. Anyway, Andy, I really hope you are still in the competition when our listeners are listening to this tape and that the match didn't take too much out of you and your hip. And finally, you may remember last week I mentioned that Naomi Osaka had withdrawn from the Australian Women's Open, citing no reason. However, the press were keen to draw the link, as was I, between the fact that she is basically not competed at the top level for quite a time now with mental health difficulties. Not this time. On her Instagram site, the way you make all your big announcements nowadays, she posted a picture of her baby scan. Yes, Muz Osaka has a baby on board. And I think I thought it was a lovely quote when she said what she really couldn't wait for is to take them to a match and have them turn round and say, that's my mum playing. Nor can we, Naomi. It will be great to see you back, 
but have a great baby, as they say. And that was your sport. Thanks, Sarah. And we move from sport, of course, as always, to Dave with your postbag. This is Postbag. in the discussion. Hi there and welcome to your postbag. Now Graham Whale starts us off with this information that he recorded on Christmas Day by phoning the postbag answer phone on 024 and pressing 5 for Coventry Talking Newspaper. Here he is. The Coventry and Warwickshire branch of the National Federation of the Blind um, are still meeting via Zoom. Um, we had an interesting meeting in October. We were visited by Richard Smith, who's the council cycling guru. Uh, our initial contact was over Spencer Park. If anybody's walked through Spencer Park recently, they will know that they've ripped up the Taptar markings. But we also took the opportunity to discuss other cycling and pedestrian facilities throughout the city. In fact, it was actually quite a useful meeting. Uh, we still meet on the third Monday of the month, um, courtesy of Zoom. Um, you can access it by computer, tablet, mobile phone app, or as I do, by ordinary landline. And uh, our meetings start at quarter past seven following the uh, archers. So please make contact with us in any way you know and then we can get back to you with the meeting identification information which you will need to access Zoom. So, you can campaign for rights of blind and visually impaired people without leaving your home, and you won't miss the archers either. That's the meetings via Zoom on the third Monday of the month at 715 you can use tablet, mobile phone, or your ordinary phone. Phone up Graham Whale on 024-76-677-263 and he'll give you the Zoom link. If you forget Graham's phone number, you can ring me and I've got an easy phone number to remember. That's 024-76-59-8484. I love hearing from listeners, by the way, so phone me up for a chat. As far as you repeating new bus routes after presenters have read them out, it doesn't do any harm to reinforce information and can help remind people. And I'm delighted to hear from Julia, who wishes us Happy New Year to all of David's listeners, and to David and Sheila, of course. Guess what? My sisters had me to dinner on Christmas Day and Boxing Day. They said I tasted better than the turkey. <laughs> there were loads of us there because all my nephews and nieces were there with all their babies. So there must have been about 250 people altogether. So as you count babies as people too. There was Baby Navy and Baby Rosie and many others. They loved tearing the paper off their presents. They didn't like the presents much, though. 
On New Year's Day, I had dinner with my brother. It was lovely seeing my family over the holiday. I gave them a Brussels sprout and some cranberry sauce. But best of all, I had two weeks off from visiting my friend John. That's all over now. It's 2023, so back to the daily grind. All the best for 2023, everybody. I I think it will probably be a good one, Julia. Well, Julia, that reminds me of a song by John Lennon. And it is Christmas. A happy new year. Let's hope it's a good one without any fears. War is over if you want it. And Julia told me at the Monday Club how much she enjoyed Graham and myself's report on our bell bike ride. She asked me how I managed to talk and ride a bike at the same time. Well, I had a lapel microphone attached to my jacket and was able to give a little running commentary as I rode along, while keeping an eye on the traffic, of course. Graham stopped briefly three times on the way to the station where Graham caught the train to the Good Food Show at the NEC. So then I got a taxi back because I had to get back to Sheila soon. So thank you. And now we have some more New Year greetings from Edwina, Doreen and Amy. Hi everybody, it's Edwina. Well, it's the time flown. We're into the new year already. I'm sending warmish wishes to you all for a very happier and more peaceful new year. I have been thinking of you all over Christmas and trust that you've had a lovely Christmas too. The time just passes so fast. Take care, everybody. I'm always with you in thought. Bye. Well, this is Dory Lilton. I wish you all a very happy new year. Good health and in good spirit. That's what we like to hear. And especially all in the resource centre and the staff. Ah, Dave and all us too. And all the listeners, I wish you all the very best and keep well. That's all we like to hear for the new year, hoping it will bring a better one for us all. It would be lovely if it does. Okay, so God bless you all, and take care. I'd like to wish everybody a happy and peaceful new year. I know there's a lot going on in the world right now, but things aren't always... Amy goes on to tell us how she spent Christmas in Florida. Well, we went to two of our favourite Disney parks, which was Epcot and Animal Kingdom, and we went to an ice exhibition, which was themed around the Jim Carrey film. The Grinch. It's based on a book by Dr. Seuss, How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Yeah. And you walk in, and it's it's nine degrees Fahrenheit, and you have to wear these D 
big parkas, these big coats, and that was very interesting. Nearly every day we went to our favourite French cafe for breakfast. That sounds wonderful. More news from Amy soon. Now Gail, she had a swinging Christmas. Tell me about your Christmas please, Gail. I'd love to because it was very nice. So what do you do? Yvonne brought her family round for Christmas lunch. Yeah. We played Christmas music. That was nice. Yvonne cooked a splendid lunch for myself, Yvonne, her daughter Anushka and her son Ellis. Oh, so we nice. all had a, a lovely time. I bought myself an Ella Fitzgerald CD. Yeah. Oh, she was doing Christmas songs. Oh, was she? Yes. Okay, so that's the, uh, so what was the Christmas uh, CD called? Oh, very nice. Uh, very nice. And Gail has answered the quiz set by Peter Walters. The questions were, number one, if you were born on Christmas Day, what star sign would you be? Two, in Germany, what would you eat on Christmas Day instead of Turkey? Three, in one year was the Queen's Christmas broadcast first televised. And four, which actor born on Christmas Day 1899 said, Here's looking at you, kid. And how many gifts, from number five, how many gifts were given in the twelve days of Christmas? Here's Gail's answers. Hello to everyone. Outlook, Mrs. Gail Taylor here. I would like to give the answers to Peter Walter's quiz. The first answer is Capricorn. The second would be Goose. The third, 1957. The, the fourth is Humphrey Bogart, and the last one would be 78. Bye! Well, according to the answers given by Pete Walters, you scored 3 out of 5. Well done, Gail. Number 1 was Capricorn. Uh, number 3, you got right, 1957. Number 4, Humphrey Bogart. Now, uh the correct answer to question 5, according to Peter Walters, is 344. Although I understand how you worked it out to 78. That was very clever of you, Gail. So, thanks for entering, Gail, and well done. I wonder what you thought about the article about identity theft the other week. I was told by a listener that it's much easier to post messages on Facebook than postbag. I am on Facebook myself, but I am aware that identity theft 
or hacking is rife, whereas sending messages into postbag is much safer. So leave a message on the phone any time, day or night, or any day of the year, with confidence. And like Gail did with the answers of the quiz, just phone in and leave a message, or send a letter, or email. Thank you for your messages this week. Let's hear from you next time, please. And bye for now. This is Outlook. You can contact Postbag. Our website is www.talkingnewspaper.org.uk. Our email address is postbag at talkingnewspaper.org.uk. Join in the discussion on Postbag. Your postbag with Dave. Uh, he always welcomes, of course, your comments to be included in the postbag. And, of course, the easiest way is by leaving a message on our answer phone, which is 02476 and then press key option 5. Now, Spawn Street has a lovely collection of buildings of the really old Coventry, and Margaret's here to tell you more from David McGrory's book, Coventry in 50 Buildings. Spawn Street has far too many interesting buildings. The Spawn Street Townscape Scheme was launched in 1969 and proposed relocating buildings from Gosford Street, Far Gosford Street, Jordan Well, Much Park Street and parts of Spawn Street and Spawn End. Eventually, only properties in Much Park Street and Western Central Spawn Street were relocated here. The first building restored in 1969 was number 169, followed by the first relocated building, number 9, previously number 7, Much Park Street, which was re-erected in June 1972. The completed street, finished in 1990, contained 12 buildings restored in situ and 10 re-erected from other sites. Spawn Street now has one of the most important groupings of medieval timber-framed buildings in the country. Numbers 1 and 2, the last built, stand at the entrance to the street. Both formerly stood beyond the ring road. Number 1 dates from the early to mid-15th century and number 2 from later that century. They were originally Four hall houses, open hall to roof and upstairs bedroom, known as Wealden houses, as they were common in East Anglia. These Wealden houses are normally bigger, but the Coventry version was adapted to fit into confined spaces. Number nine was formerly number seven, Much Park Street, and dates from the late 15th to early 16th century. Number 10 is a two-bay hall house and it's original to the site. It dates from the early 15th century with a 17th century rear. Number 11 to 12 was built in the mid-14th century and is one of the oldest buildings standing on its original site in Spon Street. It's an incomplete Wealdon house with a central hall and two-storey bays on either side. The left-hand bay was lost when number 10 was built and the right-hand bay is cut short. 
Number 14 to 15 is known as the Tudor House and dates to the mid to late 15th century. It was formerly the recruiting sergeant inn. One of the highest quality houses in the street, it was originally a four-bayed hall house with oriel windows, a two-bay hall with a fire in the centre. Number 16 was formerly 142 to 43 Spon Street, which was dismantled in 1971 and moved here. It represents the last use of timber frame building in Coventry with bricks. Numbers 20 and 21 were formerly 122 to 23 Much Park Street. The double-depth building has a mid-15th century front and mid-16th century rear. The front was jetted and the rear an open hall. The building was originally the Green Dragon Inn, made famous by its many references in George Eliot's novel Middle March. Numbers 22 and 23 are the old windmill known as Mar Browns from former publican Anna Brown. This plastered over timber building dates from around the 16th century and was originally two buildings. The present entrance originally led into a narrow courtyard that divided them. The left-hand side was a shop in the late 19th century. The original inn was here in 1824. The other older windmill inn was in Spon Causeway. Still a popular pub, it retains many original fittings. For the next building, see uh, about Rotherham House another time. Numbers 159 to 62 are a surviving section of a mid-15th century terrace. The original row was made up of six Coventry Wielden houses. Numbers 163 and 164 were formerly numbers 8, 9 and 10, Much Park Street. These are early 15th century, three-storey, high-status buildings from the former merchant quarter, which originally formed the homes of two merchants. Number 167 dates from the 15th or 16th century and wasn't originally attached to number 168, which dates from the 15th century. The curved, braced 14th century building of number 169 was the earliest and first building restored in the townscape scheme. It and its neighbour are believed to be the earliest surviving semis in the country. Numbers 171 and 172 are 15th to 16th century and original to the street. And next week, Margaret will be going to Stichel Church. I'm sure many of you have been watchers of All Creatures Great and Small on television, uh, adapted from James Herriot's books. Do you know he sold over 60 million copies and he's entertained people worldwide, increased tourism to Yorkshire and indeed he's made the Queen laugh as well. Uh, so to mark the publication of a charming new collection of short stories, James Herriot's children recall his rise from his modest uh, veterinary work to literary superstar in an article written by Jim White and Rosie Page and Sue reads part one of this two-part story. Alf White was a devoted father and a busy veterinary surgeon who spent many long days and nights driving around the hills of Yorkshire visiting his animal patients. 
As children, we often joined him on his farm visits, jumping into the car, always with a dog or two in the back, the cold, sweet-scented air of North Yorkshire all around. We were there to help, to open and close gates, run back and forth to the car to fetch syringes or penicillin. Dad relished spending time with us and we loved seeing him work. Literary success under the pen name James Herriot didn't happen till his fifties. But from an early age we learnt invaluable lessons that would later find their way into his books, not least that sows can be fearsome creatures, as Jim discovered aged thirteen when he was trapped in a sty and one came roaring towards him, only to have Dad holler, it's no good being frightened of the bloody things. We spent hours driving around the hills of North Yorkshire, often having to jump out of our Austin age 70 so Dad could coax it up the steep Sutton bank, and then as teenagers learning to drive along farm tracks, taking him on his rounds, but we loved it. Nothing can match the thrill of holding a newborn lamb or discovering a litter of kittens hidden in some straw. Our father had first arrived in the town of Thirsk, fictionalised as Darraby in his books, in 1940. He never lost his soft Glaswegian accent, having spent the previous 23 years in the Scottish city and at the Glasgow Veterinary College. Now he witnessed a community on the cusp of change, when rural vets spent their days on small farms, tending to cows in cobbled byres, birthing sheep in open fields, or chasing piglets around rickety tin sheds. Working all hours, he met an array of unforgettable characters, the main one being his long-time practice partner, Donald Sinclair, immortalised as Siegfried Farnan. While his job demanded most of his time, for many years he had dreamed of putting his experiences down on paper. At first he wrote short stories, tapping away at his typewriter in the evenings. After some gentle prodding from our mother in 1965, he decided to focus on writing a full-length book. Over the next 18 months, still working full-time and often at night, he crafted a novel based on his experiences. Publishers turned down the art and science, but he received encouraging advice from one of their readers. As his stories were clearly based on real events, why not write it in the first person? Dad took to the idea enthusiastically and set about reworking his book into an account of his first year in veterinary practice. By the summer of 1968 it was finished with the new title, If Only They Could Talk, suggested by a local dairy farmer. Dad considered himself first and foremost a vet, which is why he went to some lengths to preserve his anonymity. The only change the publisher required was that he alter his pen name, because there was a practising vet called James Walsh. Dad's alternative was inspired by the Birmingham City and future Scotland goalkeeper Jim Herriot. He also set the story in the Yorkshire Dales, 30 miles from Thirsk. If only they could talk, 
published in April 1970, would introduce Darabi, the Dales, James's erratic partner Siegfried and his younger brother Tristan, and many of the extraordinary individuals who would populate the books. Most of the tales are based on real events. Like James Herriot, Alf fell asleep under an acacia tree in the garden while awaiting his interview. He too treated an indulged Pekingese dog with flop-bot. Siegfried's arguments with his brother were just as explosive, and Tristan really did prang his brother's beloved rover. The first carving story, Dad face down on a cold floor, his arm deep in a straining cow for seemingly hours, without being offered so much as a cup of tea, was a real incident we remember him telling us about. Our father was happy to be published, but nervous about how people would react. He changed names and occasionally gender in a bid to disguise real identities, while some characters combined the traits of several individuals, but his descriptions and characters were often so well drawn that people couldn't help but recognise themselves. Generally, people were flattered. Some were even annoyed if they weren't included, as was the case with Mr. Smedley, a little old man who came into the practice one day, waving his stick and shouting, Why haven't you put me in your books, Mr. White? Sales were steady, but not meteoric. We had no idea then just how much people would grow to love his stories. By then, Jim had himself qualified as a veterinary surgeon and joined the practice and Rosie was well on her way to becoming a GP in Thursk, but we'd sit in the kitchen and joke with Dad, OK, now you've had a book published, why not do a film? We'd roar with laughter about who might play him. I think we agreed the smooth-voiced Leslie Phillips could be perfect for Siegfried. So we'll be back with the conclusion of that lovely story next week. We seem to be in another cold spell at the moment this week, so this article written by Susie Dent, uh, she of Countdown fame, uh, in, uh, in the I newspaper, ent- entitled The Big Freeze, would seem to be appropriate. It's read by Margaret. Chaos. It's a powerful word that once described a gaping abyss from which all things were made. For the Greeks, chaos was the abyss of Tartarus, the infernal regions of the underworld. Today, the dungeons of torment come with hard shoulders and sign failures, for the only companion of chaos is travel. Thanks to the big freeze, life as we know, it has come back to a shivering halt, and hyperbole is back with a vengeance. At times like these, our language keeps pace with us by donning as many layers as possible. On far less icy days than these, we are never just cold, but always Baltic, Arctic, brass monkeys, or if you're fond of your own local descriptions, shrammed, tatters, nithered or crizzling. What do we use then when we can no longer feel our hands inside, let alone out? and hug our hot water bottles as though our lives depended on them. Research suggests that we inflate our language because it provides more cortical stimulation, particularly if we're extroverts. 
outgoing people tend to choose more extreme language like incandescent, knackered or famished. But even the quieter amongst us are guilty of bigging up our existing vocabulary as a way of being heard. It's when times are particularly harsh that our wardrobes suddenly feel too flimsy. Within the pages of the historical dictionary lies a lost winter lexicon, one that might allow us to swerve the linguistic pylons and reach for a gentler articulation of the season that for Oscar Wilde brought whisper, and that for the writer Robert Byrne was nature's way of saying up yours. Winter itself took its name from an ancient word for wet and white, its mornings bring brooms, winter mists, and clinker bells, a West Country term for icicle, and if we're lucky, copious amounts of apricity, a word I will never tire of for using for the warmth of the sun on a chilly day. If it is a heller, however, it is so bone-grindingly cold that the sun doesn't stand a chance. This description from the earliest 20th century is a direct reference to those damned regions of hell. A heller might also bring on an attack of the Gwenders, a curious word from Cornwall for a distinctly uncomfortable tingling in the extremities. If you're lucky enough to have an open fire, then you can equally enjoy both the English dialect cloffin to sit idly beside one, and the more specific Manx brabag, which is to warm the back of your legs in front of it. This is the time when we are intended to shelter, and as the Scots would have it, coory or hunky down. No animal we hear in Kenneth Graham's The Wind in the Willows is ever expected to do anything strenuous or heroic or even moderately active during the off-season of winter thus giving full licence to all dormitive, sleepy creatures to retreat to our hibernacle or winter quarters. If no den is immediately apparent, then we can choose to latibulate, find a corner and hide there. As for snow, we have all heard that the Inuit vocabulary is the largest in the world when it comes to the white stuff. Yet, According to the language in the historical Thesaurus of Scots, there are more than 400 words for snow, with more being discovered all the time. The historical word hoard includes the wonderful thiefle, which means to swirl, flindrickin, a slight snow shower, and flover and figuring, both describing a single flake of snow that might be a harbinger of more. When you come across that niveous, snowy white landscape, you may leave fresh footprints by crumping across it, a highly specific word for happily crunching across lightly compressed snow. If you're a reluctant traveller, on the other hand, then mogging is the laborious trudging across icy ground. Above all, Winter is surely the time for snurdling, snudging, cruising, snoodling and snuzzling. All of these are, of course, 
cosy synonyms for snuggling and lying quiet and still. Snowmageddon might yet descend and infernal chaos might rule the roads, but winter can also give us time to recombobulate in words as well as mind. It may be a heller of a day, but we'll always have a pricity. As you know, the Resource Centre here relies on an army of volunteers to provide and assist with many of the activities available. Uh, and as a thank you from the centre, they organised a volunteer party earlier this month. Dave joined in not just as a volunteer for the centre, but to bring us this report for Outlook. Hello, welcome to a volunteers party at Coventry Resource Centre for the Blind. Let's see who we can chat to. Well, there certainly sounds a lively atmosphere in there. Right, right, I'm inside the uh, inside Boston Lodge. Quite a noisy atmosphere here, but I've just met my former news agent, Chas, and both you and your wife, Ruth, are both helping now, uh, since retirement, at the resource centre, aren't you, Chas? Yes, um, I do a bit of driving for them about two, three times a week. And it's quite enjoyable and uh, the people are nice and you have a laugh and everything is well worth it. And uh, Rube, uh, she does a bit of cooking once a week, like, you know, so it's pretty good, like, you know, all around. I'm, sp I'm speaking to Chaz's wife, Rube, at the moment. They, they, they both used to run the news agents and it was my favourite place to go to, the shop. Thank you. Anyway, so uh, you're doing a cookery course, right? I do cooking and baking with them yeah. on Thursday afternoon, 1 till 3 o'clock. Well, yeah. it's, it's all sorts of uh, cookery then? Oh, yes, like uh, cooking everything, Mediterranean, Indian, English, whatever they want. And the baking is usually baking whatever they want to bake. So I just ask all of them and decide, we decide between us what they want to bake, what they interesting so we do it every week Monday uh, Thursday oh, I was being to Mike now so uh, how, how do you help at the resource centre I'm a volunteer driver and uh, I've been doing it for about three months yeah. drive one of the minibuses probably once a week sometimes twice well so you enjoy it oh yes I love driving minibuses I've driven for a couple of other charities in the past as well Okay, I'm still at, well, I'm talking to Caden. Now, you remember me from, as a helper from Axel Grain School, don't you? Yes, I do. You came in on a Wednesday for VR Lunch Club, and you, uh, you came in and seen everybody and spoke to them. Okay, so you're still at Axel Grain School, aren't you? Yes, I am. I'm in the sixth form. I'm in year 13, and I've been there for 13 years. Okay, I'm speaking to Chris and Claire. So you you've been doing a bit of walking lately, <laughs> just, just a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> so can you tell us what the challenge was about? Then remind us, please. So it's part of the Make 250 challenge. So it's about 250 people a month go blind. I'm honestly not sure if it's England or Coventry or the world. It must be Coventry, to be fair. No, I think oh, it's the UK. Is it the UK? Oh, think, sorry, OK, there you go. Yeah. So our idea was to walk 250 kilometres, and that is about 8.064 kilometres a day. So we went, let's run up to 10. And actually, uh, my counter is sitting at 
um, 99.2 kilometres so far this month, and we're on the... We're a weekend. We're a weekend, yeah. Yeah, we're on the 7th, aren't we? So, yeah, so we're almost halfway to our target already. Okay, so where have you been walking? Uh, today we went to Cound, not Cowden Wedge, Camley um, Ford. Camley Ford, been yeah. lovely. Though. Been there, around the War Memorial Park, which yeah. has been yeah. lovely. We've been doing Park Run every uh, Saturday, so big shout out to the Park Run posse. Yeah, that's right. They the Elfman Running Club, get, uh, help us get a few more K's in. The Elfman Running Club <laughs> have been the most supportive bunch of people ever, actually. Seriously, they're amazing. They've all really? been, they went to Leicester or yeah. somewhere to go on a guide running course just so that we could yeah. join the running clubs because yeah. the insurers were being difficult. Yeah. So they've been really helpful, haven't they? They have, they've been amazing. Wow, fantastic. Where have we been? Uh, we walked to the Greyhound in Sutton Stop. Oh, great. Yeah. Junction, nice. so went there. Yeah. Um, a lot of canal. Yeah. That was fun. And just loads of places. And lots around yeah. Earlsland, actually, because Earlsland's like a big grid. Yes, you can make. I mean, our we live about 300 metres from the resource centre. Yeah. But if you really want to, I made it into a mile long journey with that. Just by weaving in and out of the road, so yeah, we're doing yeah. loads of crazy things like that. You go around Longford Park. They have a uh, they have blue footprints. The Magic Mile. The, the Magic Mile. Yeah, yeah, we used to run around there when we lived in Bell Green. Did yeah. I remember that? Yeah, I remember it was that. great fun, that wasn't it? Yeah, that was amazing. That was the Magic Mile. Fantastic. Not the, not to be confused with the Green Mile. <laughs> no, that's, right. that, that's a film, isn't it? Yeah. It is. <laughs> so, uh, how much have you raised so far? Uh, about. 850, well, so there's 800 on the on the Just Giving page, but then we've yeah. been given, um, oh, I, I don't I, know, about yeah. 15 pounds? I would estimate 850 in total. Yeah, Heather has a, a donation like box for us in Good. the reception research centre as yeah. well. Yeah, excellent, yes. So if people want to donate, they can d- donate with Heather at the Resort yep. Centre, yeah. or if, if they're now out of, they can go online. Yep, so I, I made, there's a, a shortened link, so if you go to is.gd yeah. slash ccrun2023, so it's is jo- is.gd, so a bit like is good slash ccrun2023, yeah. that, take, oh, sorry. Oh, that's <laughs> right. that takes you to our Just Giving page, uh, where you can do all the necessaries. And you know, but honestly, more important than the money, tell all your friends about it because obviously, you know, as, as a lot of the listeners know, you know, being visually impaired and blind isn't something that you know people know necessarily all that much about. So, you know, we're more interested in people having conversations rather than giving us money. Although, obviously, the research centre can always use money, so that's always useful too. Yeah, it definitely is about the conversation yeah. though. And I mean, I know we've had friends that we wouldn't normally meet up with kind of yeah. say, Oh, welcome for a walk with you then around yeah. the park. And it's been really nice because they've obviously got a bit healthier and I think I, I hope I hope we inspire people to to just get out and walk and walking get exercise, you know. Yeah. It's so good for mental health. Yeah. You've been on the radio. Anywhere else? Any other media? Front page of the Coventry Observer, Dave. I'm literally telling everybody. <laughs> a guy called Ryan uh, Ryan Smith. I can't remember. I think yeah. Ryan Smith wrote a really nice article um, about us, uh, which is really nice. So yeah, that's great. It's going good. Oh yes, and Chris and Claire do a vegan cookery course on a Wednesday at one o'clock at the Resource Centre. Well, in the Community Lounge in Boston Lodge, the place is heaving with volunteers. 
but they still need more. So if you know anybody that wants to volunteer, or you yourself, please let them know at the Resource Centre. Thank you, and that's all from the Volunteers Party at the Resource Centre. Thank you very much. Bye for now. The food was lovely, by the way. Thank you. Bye. And now, to bring this edition of Outlook to a close, we have another short story written by Cynthia Townsend, read, of course, by Ali, and this one is called Booing at the Little Chef. Family holidays were always fun when we were little. There were five of us in our family. Mum, Dad, my big sister Jane, me, and my little brother Ashley. We weren't well off. Like with all families with one parent working and one staying at home to look after the kids, money was tight and what we had we appreciated. My best friend Claire who lived down the road was an only child. She had all the latest toys and was extremely spoilt. So whenever she had something new, I wanted the same and I'd ask her and dad if I could have the same thing that Claire had. And I got the same answer. It's all right for the Johnsons. They only have one child to buy for, so the answer's no. As annoying as it was, we really didn't do that badly. We had a roof over our heads, food in our bellies, clothes on our backs, and family pets who were much loved. We also took our annual holidays during the last week in July and the first week in August. Mum and Dad saved up all year so we could afford a B&B and our final destination of choice was North Wales. We would stay in a small family-run B&B called the Blue Dolphin in Penmamar, about five miles out of Conway. Penmamar was lovely, or Pen, as we used to call it. It had a long promenade with a cafe at one end, a children's playground and a paddling pool in the middle and some chalets right at the end, which you rented by the day. We would rent one for the week, and Mum used it to make sandwiches, and also put the kettle on, and we'd store our things in there, and also use it for changing into our costumes, should we want to go swimming. From where we lived, getting to Penmamar in the car took us a couple of hours. It was a straightforward journey, and Mum always used to make up some sandwiches for the trip. She would get us ready first, and sit us in the back seat with a sandwich bag, while she and Dad put all the bags in the boot. In the time it took them to do that, me and my little brother made a start on the sandwiches, long before we'd even left the drive. It was something we were known for, not being patient, so Mum always made a special little pack of sarnies especially for us. We were quite good in the car. None of that, are we there yet? And can we stop for a wee? We found things to occupy ourselves, like counting legs on pub signs and taking it in turns to have a go. I always used to pray I'd get the coach and horses, so at least I was guaranteed eight points. Two horses, one point for each leg, and maybe ten if you encountered the two for the driver. There was only one family tradition, and that was playing the pub game, but I soon came to realise there were two others that we'd do before we got to Penmamar. On the way there, we had to drive through a tunnel which was built through the cliff, and one of the things we did was to beep our car horn when we were going through it. 
Other people used to do it, so we weren't the only ones. As we'd come out of the tunnel into daylight, about half the mile down the road on the left was the Little Chef Café. As we approached the Little Chef, our dad used to tell us to wind down the window and boo at it. Which we did, religiously, every time we drove past it, at least twice a day while we are on holiday. And we never knew why, it was just tradition. The B&B where we were staying was at the bottom of the hill on the road that led to the railway station. It was a quaint little station that was in desperate need of a facelift. The toilets were the old kind with a cistern at the top and a toilet chain pull at the side. The seats were wooden and the walls were very shiny white bricks with a lifetime of grime between the cracks. To get to the beach it was a small walk from the B&B and again a short stroll through a tunnel which was built under the railway line. And once out the other side, the cafe was to our right and the play area and chalets were to the left. Overlooking the promenade was the slate quarry. This part of North Wales was famous for its slate and you could see where the machinery had chipped away at the cliff face as there were large chunks of squares missing. And so the workers could see the time there was a massive clock on the side of the cliff face as well. Once we got to our chalet, Mum would put the kettle on and my dad was set about blowing up our little inflatable boat, put the windbreak up and set out the deck chairs. We'd round up some of our children friends and make our way to the beach with a cricket bat and ball and spent a good part of the morning playing cricket. There really wasn't that much to do at the beach apart from play. To get to the sand, we had to walk over a lot of smooth rocks, unless we were prepared to walk further up the prom and down the jetty. My dad was content just to lie on the boat, on a towel, and listen to the cricket on the wireless, while Mum sat in a deck chair reading the paper. If we did have some money in our pocket, me and my brother would go and play on the short penny machines in the cafe, and make a can of pop last a good hour and a half. We'd go to the beach for a week, and then in the second week we'd do day trips to Conway and Landudno and Rill. It had to be somewhere we could go which wouldn't cost a fortune, but give us a change of scene. We wouldn't always stay at the B&B. Sometimes we stayed in a large static caravan on a park, as it was more cost-effective to hire a van for a couple of weeks, and that's what we ended up doing for a while. After a few years, Mum and Dad had saved up enough to buy a second-hand touring caravan, which again saved a lot of money and was also very convenient. The park we used to stay at, the Gardens Caravan Park, was owned by Mr and Mrs Williams. They had five children, three of whom were close in age to me and my brother, so we had ready-made playmates. The park also had dogs and cats, that freely roamed around the place, and a caged enclosure where rabbits and guinea pigs lived. For an animal lover like me, it was pure heaven. However, I used to get into trouble for bringing the cats back to the caravan and feed them the ham that Mum had saved for putting the sandwiches. Over the thirty years or so that we went to Penn as children and then as young adults, we would still go through the same routine of beeping the car horn in the tunnel or booing at the little chef. 
The latter we did as a matter of course, but still never knew why. It wasn't until I was in my late thirties that I questioned my dad about the ritual. Why was it, every time we drove past the little chef, did he ask us to wind down our window and boo at it? His response was not what I expected. Apparently, when I was a toddler in 1965, and we first started going on holiday to Pemimar, Mum and Dad stopped off at the little chef for something to eat. He ordered the all-day Olympic breakfast, and when it came, the beans were stone cold. So from that day on, and for the next 30 years, he'd make us boo at the little chef. I'm so glad I'm not one for bearing grudges. One family trait I am happy not to have inherited. So with that story from Ali, we come to the end of Outlook for this week. Don't forget, with the current postal disruption, to get your wallets in the post as soon as possible. We, of course, will be back next week. Until then, it's goodbye from me, Nigel Hewing. <laughs>